Apology video is over. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that that paradoxology video transitioned from. Anyway, um, so good to see all of you. Uh, thank you for being here, and um, happy December, happy Advent uh, to you all. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery, and uh, I'm really excited for this season and for the fact that it is actually chilly in Davis sometimes. I was wondering if that was ever going to happen, but apparently it does get cold here. Um, anyway, thank you to the Ray family and the Ray girls for uh, getting us started here in our, uh, in our Advent season. Now, before we really jump into our, our conversation, this new series on the Gospel of Matthew, I want to give you guys a couple of updates about things that are going on here at Discovery. And I want to do it through kind of what I would call our basic framework as a church. We've talked about uh, uh, gatherings, groups, and generosity as being sort of the foundation of all the things that we do as a community. So I want to give you just a couple of insights to each of those things here before, uh, before we really jump in. So gatherings are what happens here on Sunday morning when we get together for worship and teaching and communion and to see one another. And we are going to be spending the next, get ready for this, okay, the next 40 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you are like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? But I am really excited about this. I think there's going to be some really great things that come out of sitting in one place in Scripture for such a long time. And we'll talk more about why that is here in just a moment. But that's what Sunday morning is going to look like. And we're breaking it up into, I think, seven sort of mini-series. The first one being Advent and Christmas. So we'll be broken up a little bit in that way. Our groups are our smaller groups that meet in, in homes here in Davis and Woodland are going to continue tracking with the Sunday morning conversation. So if you are uh, looking to get plugged into community, if you want to explore this in more depth and ask questions and, and figure out how does this apply and how does this show up in my life, our groups are a great place to do that. And, and December is not usually a time to make a plug for groups, but since we're starting a new series, I just want to say now is as good a time as any to get involved in a group. So make sure you check those out um, if you want to go that next step in that conversation. And then the last piece is generosity. What does it look like for us as a church, as a community, to be generous, to be a blessing to uh, our, our neighbors, our friends, our surrounding area. And a couple of weeks ago on our baptism Sunday, we took up an offering. We do this every month called Caring Compassion. But that specific offering was and is dedicated to uh, helping victims of the campfire in paradise. And so I wanted to give you guys an update about that. We raised $3,579. Okay, yes, please clap for that. Very cool. And for this offering, we were kind of looking around at, at, at who uh, to give this to or how to partner with this money. And Thrivent is an organization that we have some relational ties with. They are a, a Christian faith-based financial group that oftentimes will come alongside communities that have been through uh, a tragedy like that. And they will match money. And so they've said, uh, we want churches and individuals to give. And if they give up to 150000 they will match that. And I am... I'm 99.9% .9 sure they're going to hit that easily. So essentially we are, are doubling our money by giving it to them, and they have people on the ground who I think will, will find a really great way to use that. So essentially $7,000 because of your guys' giving going uh, to helping victims of the campfire, and I think that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So thank you for your generosity. All right, a couple of quick updates. Let's pray, and then we'll begin this journey in Matthew.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for what you are doing in and through Discovery and that we get to be a part of it together as a community of people. God, um, we continue to pray for um, our neighbors to the north that there would be healing and, and there really would be hope as we talk about Advent, as we talk about this first big idea of hope, that people would begin to see that showing up in, in small ways, but also in real and very tangible ways. God, we pray for um, anyone here this morning who comes into this space uh, struggling, not feeling the Christmas vibes, not feeling a sense of hope. Would you revive us? Would you restore our sense that you are alive and active, that you make promises and that you keep promises? that you're up to something new and fresh in our world, even though it might feel like, it might look like, that is the exact opposite thing that's happening. So God, as we begin this journey together through the book of Matthew, would you soften our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And would you use this to shape us as a people? May we be formed by who Jesus is, who he came to be what he has done for us on our behalf. Would we be a good news community that reflects the truth of Jesus to Davis and to wherever you have us, God? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will come around and make sure that you have one. You can also take those with you if you are in need of a Bible. Well, as I said, we're beginning a long journey here through Matthew. This is the story of Jesus told to us by a guy named Matthew. Most people agree that Matthew was one of Jesus' original disciples, and he sets out to write an account of Jesus' life. These accounts, there's four of them that we have in the New Testament, are oftentimes called Gospels. And if you have a Bible, oftentimes the title in your Bible will say the Gospel according to whoever the author is, in this case, Matthew. Now this word gospel is a word that I think has gotten uh, uh, used a lot, maybe even overused in church. It's on blogs, it's on book titles, it's kind of all over the place. And so it can become one of those words that we're overly familiar with. It can become some background noise. And I want us to just reduce it right back down to its very original literal meaning. Gospel means good news. So part of what Matthew is doing here, part of his goal in writing these things down is to help us see and understand how is Jesus good news. And this is, I think, going to be so good for us. We're, we're in a, a phase, a season in the life of our church where we are sort of rethinking who we are and who we want to be. The, uh, a season of um, thinking about clarifying our, our mission and our vision and something that I feel needs to be said very strongly, very clearly here on the front end of this conversation is this. Whatever the end result of this might look like, whatever words we put on, you know, brochures and the web page, if it doesn't speak good news, if it doesn't reflect the good news of Jesus, then what are we doing? What do these words mean? 
If our presence as a church is not good news here in Davis, if it's not good news for UC Davis, good news for Woodland, good news for our county, good news for the world, then again, what are we doing? We want to be a good news community. And so we're going to spend a lot of time with Jesus. Because again, whatever the end result of this conversation might be, we want it to reflect who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, and to reflect how he went about doing the things that he did while he was here on this earth. Now, for some of us, this will be a new experience for us, either because we haven't spent time with Jesus in this way, or maybe we haven't spent this much time in one section of Scripture. And so my prayer is that this will be an exciting moment for you in your journey, that this will become very, uh, very fresh as you, as you look at this for the first time, maybe spend this much time in this gospel. For others of us, maybe we've been around church for a while. We, we, we've heard some of these stories before. Maybe we've become overly familiar with this. We're a little bit jaded. And so my prayer for you is that this would help shake off any complacency that may have settled in. That you would be able to see again with fresh eyes just how radical the announcement of Jesus as Messiah really is. So wherever you might be in that spectrum, again, my hope here is that this conversation is good news for all of us. Now, a a bit of a turn here. Before we get into the text itself, how many of you are, are podcast fans? This is participatory. Please raise your hand, okay? Wow, quite a bit. How many of you listen to more than two podcasts a week? We have more fans than committed, <laughs> committed people. That's cool. Um, podcasting it has become this huge industry, right? This, this sort of new way to get out ideas and messages into the world. And I have to confess that I'm not a huge podcast listener. It's kind of ironic because I'm wired up just to absorb information. I just want all the information. And podcasting is this, like, it's just like this treasure trove of information. I should be listening to them all the time, but I just don't have the time to do it. That being said, one of the things that I really appreciate about podcasting is that it has raised the level of awareness and the importance, I think, of storytelling in our culture. Podcasts like This American Life are master classes in the art of storytelling. And this guy named Paul Oster, he's actually a filmmaker, but he was part of NPR's Story Project, which was really the forerunner to a lot of the podcasts that we enjoy today, it was reflecting on that experience. Here's what he had to say about their process. He says, we wanted stories that defied our expectations about the world And that revealed the mysterious forces at work in our lives, in our family histories, in our minds and bodies, in our souls. In other words, true stories that sounded like fiction. Now there's a bridge here, I think, to the series that we just finished. Remember we spent the last two plus months in that conversation called Paradoxology. Paul Oster here describes a paradox. There's something about great Stories, great storytelling that grounds us in reality, that makes our real daily lives just a little bit more real, a little bit more alive. But at the same time, great stories move us 
beyond that reality. They pull us into something bigger and grander. And this is what Gospels do. This is what I hope our journey in Matthew does for us. Defy our expectations while revealing the forces at work in our lives. A true story that sounds like fiction. Grounds us in reality but pulls us into something really big. Now, storytellers emphasize the importance of what's called the narrative transport. This is the idea that a good story captures us, captures our minds, captures our hearts, and takes us somewhere. Think about your favorite book or movie and how when you, when you crack that book open or when you sit down to watch that movie for that amount of time that you're with that, you're just you're somewhere else. It takes you somewhere. And in particular, a good story, a great story does this right Right out of that gate, the first scene, the first words take you somewhere else. Now, with all of that in mind, look with me at the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which starts like this. This is how Matthew begins his account of Jesus, the narrative transport, if you will. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and on and on it goes. It's just a bunch of names. Now, for those of us, 21st century people, we, we sit down and we, we start reading something like this and we're conditioned to movies and we're so visual and we just think, oh my goodness, this is so boring. Like it's just names and I can't even pronounce most of them. And, and if you are the kind of person who tries to read your Bible, a lot of times these are the sections where we're like, okay, we just, I'll just skip this one and move on to like, where's the, where's the interesting stuff? But for Matthew's original audience, this would have been the equivalent of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, instantly taking them somewhere else. Narrative transport. So hopefully, at least in part, we can redeem the genealogy this morning. So here we go. Let's begin by making a couple of big observations about this, a couple of conclusions, and then we'll get into some of the interesting and the weird parts of the genealogy because I actually think that what Matthew is doing here is really awesome. So first observation is this. Matthew begins by taking us back in time. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Steve, that is a pretty obvious observation. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Hang with me here for a minute, okay? The first two words of Matthew's gospel in the Greek are biblos geniosis. Biblos geniosis. Literally, this could be read a book of Genesis or a book of the Genesis of Jesus. And so, immediately, we have a callback to Genesis. To the first book in Scripture, the first book of the Jewish Torah, a callback to the beginning, to the beginning of this big, epic story of our universe. Part of what Matthew is telling us here is that Jesus did not just fall out of the sky and into history. There's a story before the story. And this leads to our first significant conclusion. This gospel is going to have a very Old Testament Jewish flavor to it. Because what the genealogy does... 
is it retells the story of Israel. We're going to see a whole bunch uh, of clues along these lines as we move forward and make our way through this book. But Matthew, given his Jewish audience, is connecting with that audience right from the very first words. In the beginning, Genesis, Torah, this is your story. This is your history. Pay attention. Now, second observation, and this comes right again out of that very first verse. This history is making a bold statement. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, for those of us who have been in church for a while, we have a tendency to read something like this, sort of blast right through it, hearing Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. But for Matthew's original audience, they would not have thought that. They wouldn't even really have believed that yet at this point in time. And so they would have read the verse this way. For them, Messiah equals king. So they would have read verse 1 like this. This is the story, the book, the genesis of our long-awaited and hoped-for king. And this is our second conclusion. This is one of the major, major themes of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is king. King and kingdom. Matthew is just going to hit this drum over and over and over again for the next 27 chapters. Jesus is king. Now, third observation. Again, keeping in mind the targeted audience, Matthew connects Jesus specifically to two major Old Testament characters, David and Abraham. Basketball teams are always looking for a big three. Three sort of foundational star players to build their teams around. For Matthew, this is his big three. Abraham, David, and Jesus. They become the, the major organizing principle of this genealogy. Abraham and David, so central to the first century Jews' understanding of their heritage and their identity. Our, our section today ends in verse 17. Let's look at verse 17 here real fast. This is the summary of the genealogy. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, a lot of different interpretations about what, what 14 means and why is it significant. Some people see it, it's, it's, you know, 14 divided by 2 is 7, and 7 is an important number. Uh, some people say that David's name in Hebrew adds up to 14. And so is Matthew trying to make some sort of connection, kingly connection that way? And then there's the reality that these aren't actually, like if you go through and count, there's not always 14 exact people or, or generations there. And so does Matthew not know how to count? Like what's going on? Did he make a mistake? And if he did, what does that mean? And, and there might be some really interesting conversations to have around that. But it misses a larger truth. Genealogies of that time were less about accurately lining out someone's family tree. Okay, this is not DNA testing and Ancestry.com for first century people. Genealogy was storytelling. In particular, this is connecting Jesus to the big story of Scripture by creatively using the symmetry of 14 generations to very succinctly tell the story in three moves. So what I want to do here for just a moment is have us sit with each of those moves. We're going to read a large 
chunk of Scripture. But these words would have been the words that rattled around in the minds of Matthew's original audience. This is what they would have thought, and this is the, 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 the text that would have formed them and shaped them as they came and read this for the first time or heard this for the first time. So the first move, beginning with Abraham, it reminds us of God's call, God's covenant, and that's a fancy word for promise, that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, you I will curse. And here's the key phrase here. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now the second move reminds us of the call and covenant, the promise that God made with David. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now... I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And here's the key phrase here. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now the third move brings the story into their present moment, the time of exile and scattering that had taken place for Israel and the Jewish family for several hundred years before Jesus arrives on the scene. And during this time, God would speak to his people through Prophets And sometimes the prophets would have a message of, of judgment or destruction or here comes something bad you need to be aware of. And other times they would have a message of hope. And in particular that hope was about returning to their land and that God would then restore this kingdom that he had promised to David. Look for example at the words of Ezekiel. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. And here's the key phrase from this promise. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then the nations, here's that tie back to Genesis 12. The nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. And my sanctuary is among them forever. This brings us to our third big conclusion. Each move in this story, as Matthew retells Israel's story, each move is designed to remind them that the hero of their story has always been God. It was God who chose Abraham and promised him land and a family. It was God who chose David and promised him a never-ending kingdom. And it was God who promised to end the exile and bring his people back 
to him. And so, by going back, Matthew sets up his audience to see that in their present moment, God is not done. God is not done making and keeping and fulfilling his promises. And the audacious claim that Matthew makes is that the fulfillment of all of these promises is this person named Jesus. Jesus is the blessing to all nations promised to Abraham. He's the everlasting king promised to David. He's the fulfillment of that promise made through Ezekiel that God would dwell with them. So we start with genealogy as history, as remembering, as storytelling. But there's some interesting things going on in this genealogy that give us a couple of signals, clues, that God is also up to something a little bit different, something new, something surprising. We've talked a little bit about the mathematical oddities in the genealogy, but there's another unusual feature that would have just leapt off the page to Matthew's original audience. And it's the inclusion of four women. There's at least one woman named in each of the three moves. And there's actually a fifth woman, Mary, but we'll talk about her a little bit more next Sunday. So I want us to look at these four women and see what they have to tell us about what Matthew is trying to do here in this genealogy. But first, general observation. For a Jewish audience, this was a very strange move that Matthew is making. Jewish people trace their lineage through their fathers. And so Matthew, in many ways, is, is risking his credibility by including these four different women in this list of names. Second thing is this. We're not going to do a lot of comparison between the four Gospels in this conversation. But it's worth mentioning here, out of the four, Matthew and Luke are the only two to do this sort of exercise, this list of names. Luke begins his genealogy with Adam, going all the way back to the beginning, and then lists 67 names after that. Not one of them is female. And that's really interesting because Luke, out of all four of the Gospels, does probably the most, some of the most radical things, including women in the narrative. But there are no women named in his genealogy. But Matthew has these four. And so the question is, what is he doing here? What is the point of this? So what I want to do here is just take a brief look at each of these women in case you're not familiar with who they are and their stories, and then we'll draw some conclusions from that. So the first one that is named is Tamar, Matthew 1.3. Her story can be found in Genesis 38, and it is uh, gnarly, to say the least. Tamar was an Ammonite, so she's a Gentile woman who was married to the eldest of the three sons of Judah. And if you're not familiar with some of this terminology... The people of Israel kind of trace themselves back to, to, Ab, to Abraham, but then from there, the 12 uh, tribes become their, their sort of uh, organizing principle as a group of people. And so Judah is one of these uh, people who a tribe is named after. So a forefather of the people of Israel. And here's how the story goes. Tamar's husband dies, and since uh, they had not produced any children, it was custom for her to then get passed on to the next oldest Brother, And so that happens. She becomes married to the, the second oldest son. He also dies. And by the way, they both die because they were not good guys. God punishes them by killing them. 
And so then she gets passed on to the third son. The only problem here is that the third son is not old enough yet to be married. So Judah says, I want you, Tamar, to go live with your father for a couple of years while my son uh, basically grows up and comes of age. Now, one day during this season of waiting, Tamar gets word that Judah is passing by. So she disguises herself. And in disguising herself, Judah mistakes her as a prostitute. And so he says, hey, I would like to sleep with you and I will pay you a goat. Only I don't have a goat with me right now. So I'll just send it to you after I go home after this. And Tamar's like, I don't know if I like that deal. So here's what I want you to do. Give me your ring and your staff and then we'll do this trade. You send me the goat and I'll send those back to you. So this is what happens. And um, lo and behold, Judah gets Tamar pregnant. She uh, starts to show, and this, of course, creates controversy. Judy gets really upset that his daughter-in-law, who's supposed to marry his third son, has been sleeping around. And so she, he says she needs to be killed. So he brings her in to be executed, and she goes, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. Uh, I have some important piece of information here. She said the father of this child is the owner of this ring and staff. And it's just this, like, boom, mic drop moment in the Old Testament. And Judah, to his credit, sees what she has done and calls her righteous. And she then becomes, this offspring of hers then becomes one of Jesus' ancestors. Crazy story. But here we have a bold Gentile woman using her guile to protect her rights, and God includes her in the family lineage of Jesus. Second woman mentioned is named Rahab. If you remember from our paradoxology series, we talked about Rahab quite a bit. She was a citizen of Jericho. She was, again, not an Israelite. This time she is actually a prostitute. But she protected and aided Israelite spies as they were checking out the promised land. And so because of that act of faith, Rahab is spared. She marries into the Israelite family and also into the family of Jesus. Third woman named is Ruth. Ruth is easily the most noble character, maybe the most noble character in the whole genealogy, but certainly among these four women. She was a Moabite, so again, not an Israelite. She was widowed, but decided to faithfully stick with and care for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and through a series of events, she gets married to a guy named Boaz, Rahab's grandson. Finally, verse 6, there's this mysterious mention of Uriah's wife. Some debate about, about this, why she's not mentioned by name. If you know your Old Testament, you know this is Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with that story, King David spies Bathsheba while she's bathing, invites her over, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed in this super shady way. Then he ends up taking her as his wife, and it's one of David's worst moments as king. Some people say Matthew doesn't name her specifically because he's sort of ashamed of this part of the story. But I think that he doesn't name her because she's actually, out of the four women, the only one who is a Jew. But Uriah was not Jewish. So we have three Gentiles and then one lady who was married to a Gentile. And so again, the question, what is Matthew doing? Mentioning these four women in this genealogy. 
Well, he's using these women to make a point, especially a point to his Jewish audience. God has always used surprising non-Jewish people as part of his salvation plan. So yeah, it's partly crazy for Matthew to even mention these women, but it is entirely intentional. He starts his book with this reference to Genesis, the beginning for all of us. And then he starts the genealogy with Abraham, whose family is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And then he strategically uses four women to get the attention of his audience. And these four women point us to the reality, the good news about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the King, not just for Israel, not just for law-abiding Jews. He is a King for everyone, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, saint and sinner. And this is where Matthew is going to take us. He ends his gospel with a call to take this good news to all nations. And so even here, right from the get-go, in this long list of boring names, Matthew is tipping his hand as to what the purpose of his telling of the Jesus story is. This good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the King, this good news is for everyone. Good news for the whole world. Now, a couple of ways I want us to sort of summarize and sit with this. On the one hand, the the genealogy of Jesus grounds us in his humanity. These names represent real people who lived real, messy, complicated lives. And it's it's, it's, uh, dirty and crazy and not sanitized in any way. It's crazy the people that God uses, how his plans are so intertwined with a messed up sinful human race. And yet in this, there is this strong affirmation of humanity. Jesus was a person. At the same time, the story grounds us in Jesus' divinity. This was not just a series of random events. Jesus was not just uh, some guy that lived in Palestine during the first century. God's hand can be seen all the way through this. Creation to Abraham to David, Joseph and Mary to Jesus. That's what we might call the Jesus paradox. Again, going back to our last series. The Jesus paradox, the God who is fully human and fully God, who uses his power and our fragility to achieve his purposes. The God who keeps his promises, but who fulfills his promises in surprising ways. Israel's king who turns out to be the king for everyone. The Jesus paradox. So I hope you begin to see that this list of names, so easy to skip over or blast right through, is full of good news for us. A couple of ways that I think it's good news for us. First, the genealogy shows us that Jesus is good news for women. And let's be real here, the church for the last 2,000 years has not always been good news for women. The church in the last 20 years has not always been good news for women. And as a pastor, I have to apologize for all the ways that men like me have not modeled God's radical inclusion of women in his plan of redemption. But Jesus is good news 
for men and for women. Second, Jesus is good news for messed up people. (laughs) These names, again, represent stories, and these stories are not pretty and nice. These are not heroes of the faith, necessarily. Each of these people rejected God in some way, and yet God uses them and includes them, again, in his plan for the salvation of his people, of his creation. And then finally, Jesus is good news for those of us who have lost or who are struggling with hope. And we lit that candle, which represents hope here just a few moments ago. And again, you may come in here this morning thinking, hope? (laughs) You see the the craziness of our world. You've been through some sort of tragedy recently. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction that you cannot get past. Maybe there's sin that nags your life that makes you feel like you are unworthy or unqualified. You have lost hope. You've lost your good news. And yet, here's this list of names telling us God keeps his promises. God does new, surprising things. And so maybe the invitation this morning is simply to trust that or to trust that again or to trust that for the first time. That God keeps his promises and God still does new and surprising things. Despite how crazy our world feels, despite how inadequate you might think that you are, no matter what you have done, the Christmas story boldly tells us Jesus is for you. He is your king and there is room for you in his kingdom. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for the good news about Jesus. You could have so easily turned your back on us as your rebellious creation. And yet through real specific people throughout history, you have demonstrated your desire to move closer and closer and closer to us, to be with us. And we have no more clear example of that than the person of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. You want to be with us. You have gone to great lengths to be with us. And God, we are so grateful for that. To know that no matter what we struggle with, no matter what we've done, no matter how unworthy we may feel, you Invite us into your kingdom. I pray, first of all, God, for those who need to simply accept that truth this morning, that they would be courageous enough to do that even now. God, for those of us who are um, feeling a little bit beat down, we've lost our hope, we've lost the sense of good news, would you begin to restore that for us even now? as we take communion, as we remember your sacrifice on our behalf, why you came. And as we sing these songs together, as we spend this time together, God, would you begin to rekindle that hope in each one of us, that you keep your promises and that you still do new and surprising things.